It is the early Cretaceous period. Dinosaurs continue their dominance over Earth, filling in all the niches and roles in their environments, and even taking to the skies. We are in what will one day be in northeastern China, where temperate trees grow alongside bountiful lakes, and rivers are fed continuous streams of water from towering volcanoes. A roadrunner-like dinosaur hops along the forest floor. It is called Meilong. At first glance, you may have mistaken it for a bird. Its feathers protrude from its arms and tail, and its body is very thin and very gracile in nature. But a closer look betrays its dinosaurian traits. Grasping claws adorn its hands, and a pair of impressive sickle claws arc from its feet. As she hunts, the air is filled with noises of flying critters, like bugs, birds, and pterosaurs. Chirps, squeals, buzzing, and squawks create a cacophony of noise that is gently absorbed by the trees. A rustle in the leaves, and the Maylong becomes hyper-focused. She quickly pounces, and in a flash, it is over. A lizard hangs limply from her jaws as she gives it a shake or two before dropping it and dismembering it. Satiated, she returns home, a small burrow which she commandeered for herself. The sun is setting, and as it dips past the horizon, she gives a few sleepy chirps and droops her way into her dwelling. A few spins around, and she gently kneels to the ground. In a final act, she tucks her head behind her left wing and falls gently asleep. As she sleeps, the ground awakes. A nearby volcano erupts, releasing a cloud of deadly carbon dioxide gas. It billows down the volcano like an avalanche and spreads outwards. It reaches the Maylong's den and soon asphyxiates the unsuspecting creature. Following closely behind the gas, a traumatic mudslide made of ash, mud, and rock races down the volcano's side. It reaches the now-dead hunter and quickly fills in her burrow and hardens like a concrete as soon as it's still. Despite its violent death, the Maylong's body is perfectly preserved in her resting position and lays protected for millions of years until she is rediscovered. The name Meilong is Chinese for the soundly sleeping dragon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fossil Bonanza. My name is Andy Connolly, and this is a podcast focused on unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstätten. Normally, fossils are found in bits and pieces, and finding the whole animal, much less an entire ecosystem, is incredibly rare. However, these exceptional fossil sites give us clarity for an ancient world which would otherwise be lost. And today, we are covering one of the most famous upstart fossil Lagerstätten, which exploded into the paleontology community like an erupting volcano. If you even remotely 
paid attention to dinosaur news these past 20 years or so, you probably know that dinosaurs have feathers. Yes, feathers. Which meant a lot of them weren't as naked and reptilian-like as seen in Jurassic Park. The extent of how many dinosaurs had true feathers versus proto-feathers is still a matter of hot debate, but much of our evidence for feathered dinosaurs, and that birds are descended from dinosaurs, comes from today's fossil Lagerstadt, the J-Hole Biota. The J-Hole Biota is a fossil Lagerstadt from northeastern China, mainly in the Liaoning province, which connects to the coastline, as well as Hebei province and Inner Mongolia just to the west of it. And I should say, of course, apologies for any mispronunciations I say during this episode. Uh, I'm trying my best here. Uh, and so, please forgive me on that regard. Anyway, unlike other Lagerstadt, the Jeho Biota is made up of several rock formations, collectively called the Jeho Group. They're all from the same time period, the early Cretaceous, about 135 to 120 million years ago. It is safe to say that the Jeho Biota is one of the most significant Lagerstadt from the Cretaceous period, and even the Mesozoic Era, which is also called the Age of Dinosaurs. Not only are there abundance of fossils that make up a lush ecosystem, the fossils are preserved with a remarkable exceptionalism, with the likes of feathers, hairs, and embryos stored within the rocky layers. But many Lagerstadt can claim such a unique feat, so what makes J-Hole any different? In this case, the J-Hole biota is exceptional because it fills in crucial gaps missing in the fossil record, the evolution of mammals, the evolution of flowering plants, and the evolution of birds. When I started researching and producing this episode, I was aware that J-Hole was special even amongst its own colleagues, Yet I didn't fully grasp its uniqueness until I dug through the literature and found paper after paper after paper of groundbreaking research. Several times, I came across experts who proclaimed that this was one of the top 10 fossil sites in the world. And you know what? I agree with them. There was so much to talk about and gush that I just had to split this episode into two parts. And even then, I had to limit myself because otherwise I would just keep talking forever. <laughs> And so, we will look at the crazy world of the Jeho Biota, starring dinosaur-eating mammals, toothy birds, and four-winged raptors. We will understand how these animals and plants were preserved to perfection. We will learn about the Jeho Biota's chaotic history, with its many highs and unfortunate lows. And we will discover why the Jeho Biota is nicknamed the Mesozoic Pompeii. Let's dive in. So, a running theme I'm beginning to notice among prominent Lagerstaaten is their long-time, locally-known status suddenly exploding into a world-recognized fossil site. The Jeho Biota is no different. Although it's likely farmers and other folks have known about the Jeho Biota for centuries, the first scientific recognition of them started in the mid-19th century, with French missionary Pierre David, who documented the area's fossilized fish. Beyond that, Paleontology work had been very minimal until the 1920s when paleontologist Dr. Amadeus William Grabo studied the area and coined the terms J-hole series for the rock layers and J-hole fauna for the fish and other marine organisms. 
Alright, but what does J-Hole mean exactly? Long story short, J-Hole refers to a region in northeast China and was once a province under the Republic of China. After World War II, the People's Republic of China broke up the region and merged the parts into a local province. The name Jehol means hot river, in reference to the region's many hot springs. Besides a few updates in the 1920s and a rebranding in the 1960s to the Jehol Group and Jehol Biota, nothing too significant changed until the late 1980s when a farmer found the region's first fossilized bird. It was called Sinornis, meaning Chinese bird, and despite its fragmentary makeup and lack of feather preservation, it was already influential in the paleontology community. At this time, the fossil record of birds was, and frankly still is, incredibly fragmentary, with huge gaps in time and space between different species. The oldest known bird at that time was the transitional fossil Archaeopteryx, dated at 150 million years ago during the late Jurassic, and coincidentally enough was also found in a Lagerstadt. I think you all know almost instantly who I am referring to. You might even see in your mind's eye the famous Berlin specimen in its death pose, with its feather impressions stretching outwards from its contorted body. Well, Archaeopteryx had characteristics of both dinosaurs and birds, having teeth, claws, and a long tail like a dinosaur, but wings, feathers, and a wishbone like a bird. The void of fossilized birds after Archaeopteryx was huge and incredibly lonely, with only a few other species showing up here and there to patch these holes. And as a comparison, the next youngest complete bird fossil was a whopping 50 million years younger than Archaeopteryx. That's huge. And by then, these birds were relatively advanced, and many of their reptilian lineages were replaced, modified, or just completely absent. So you're seeing a huge gap between this kind of looks like a bird to, yep, this is definitely a bird. As such, Sinornis fills in a crucial hole in this evolutionary gap. At 135 million years old, it was 15 million years younger than Archaeopteryx a perfect time span to understand how birds have evolved since. Sinornis still had teeth like Archaeopteryx and other dinosaurian characteristics, but many bird traits were already taking shape. The body and tail were shortened to increase flying maneuverability. The toes were modified so it could perch on branches, and the breastbone was enlarged to create a more powerful flight. And the claws were reduced foregoing its traditional use to grab small prey. It is clear that the ancestor of birds were incredibly successful in their rise to sky dominance. In a relatively short time, they lost many ground-dwelling characteristics in favor of life in the sky and the trees. Sinornis was but the first drop in what would soon become a wave of exciting vertebrate fossils. The 90s was a heyday for the Jeho biota, as new species after new species were discovered, challenging and rechallenging traditional ideas and thoughts we had about the evolution of life. Sinornis and other birds, such as Confucius Nornis, which is the oldest known beaked bird, were discovered, but with feathers. Mammals and pterosaurs were found within these rock layers, some of which still had food in their stomachs. And, of course, dinosaurs were found. And one of the most groundbreaking, game-changing dinosaurs was found in 1996. And its significance came because it had something that 
no other dinosaur was known to have at the time. This dinosaur had feathers. In August of 1996, Lin Yunfang, a young local farmer, was excavating fossils near Sihetun village. At this point, the fossilized birds were well known in the community, and farmers had made a habit to excavate the fossils and sell high-quality specimens to willing buyers. After taking out a large slab, Lee split the siltstone in half and opened it up like pages in a book. Almost immediately, it was apparent that this fossil was no ordinary bird. The specimen was small, less than three feet long, with its tail making up more than half its length. Its relatively large head arched backwards, as if looking up to the sky, and its limbs were tucked nicely in. Most excitingly of all, a downy coat of feathers, turned dark red by fossilization, adorned the animal's back down to its tail. It was unlike anything he had ever seen. It was named Sinosauropteryx prima, meaning the first Chinese dragon feather. Although the original scientists who named it thought it was a primitive bird, it quickly became apparent to other paleontologists that this was not a bird, but a feathered dinosaur. News of the findings spread quickly despite China's initial lockdown to keep the photos from leaving the country. The arguments surrounding Sinosauropteryx became incredibly heated, especially since very few experts had seen the fossil in person. The crucial debate wasn't about if this was a bird or dinosaur. Most paleontologists agreed it was a dinosaur. It was whether or not the hair-like markings were feathers or something else. Some paleontologists were in the firm, no, they can absolutely be not feathers, and instead proposed that the markings were muscle tissue fibers. This was found to not be the case, as confirmed by a separate group of scientists. For one thing, the markings adorned the fossil skin like fine little hairs. But even more interesting, the markings still had preserved melanosomes, which determine hair and feather color in modern animals. These and other sources of evidence convinced many people that the markings were protofeathers, hair-like structures that precursed the complex feathers we see on birds today. Yet, that's the thorny issue here. Protofeathers. What makes a feather a feather? Even today, feathers come in a wide range of structures, such as the chick's downy fuzz, a peacock's luxurious display, and a flying bird's sleek wings. Compared to those, these, quote, integumentary structures, as they are often called due to their presence on the animal's skin, are more akin to hairs than feathers. And so while, yes, the Sinosauropteryx protofeathers are wonderful, they are a far cry from feathers we see today. Thankfully, the following years revealed more fossilized dinosaurs that seemed to respond to such doubts. A year after Sinosauropteryx, the newly described Caudipteryx was found with tail and arm feathers with long shafts and many branching veins. Oh yeah, those are feathers, no doubt about that. But wait, it, it gets better. In 2003, the whole thing was just blown out of the water with the discovery of Microraptor Gui, one of the smallest dinosaurs ever discovered. It had feathers on its tail, its forearms, and even its hind limbs. 
It was like the animal equivalent of a biplane. And the feathers were asymmetrical, which flying birds have today. The feather's asymmetrical shape helped birds glide and fly around. And it's likely that Microraptor did the same thing, gliding from tree to tree and eating up all the delicious birds, insects, and so forth it could find. In the space of a few years, 12 different dinosaurs were found with varying degrees of feather preservation and feather complexity. This brought with them a deluge of information to a field of science that was once a drought. One of the most recent and game-changing advances in science was the evolution of feathers. Simplifying years of research and hot debate into a minute, feathers likely evolved something like this. A very primitive dinosaur, perhaps even the ancestor of all dinosaurs, evolved hair-like structures on their reptilian skin for insulation. Over time, some dinosaurs kept these hairs while others lost it. The theropod dinosaurs, which includes Velociraptor and Trinosaurs and now birds, took advantage of these feathers and evolved elaborate displays. These displays may have been used for intimidation or for attracting mates. But regardless, some theropods took their arm feathers further and used them to glide from tree to tree in order to stay above the dangerous ground. Eventually, some started flapping more and more to stay afloat until they can fly without the use of trees. And that's how the evolution of flight and feathers happened. But keep in mind, there is still debate about this, especially if birds evolved from the ground up or from the trees down, but the story that I just gave here is the generally accepted hypothesis. The ramifications of Sinosauropteryx and the host of other fossilized birds and dinosaurs that followed gave paleontology a massive amount of evidence concerning the origin of birds. Ever since the 1800s, there was some thought and discussion that birds evolved from dinosaurs. But the lack of evidence, especially because feathers are incredibly fragile and rarely fossilized, made this more of a fun what-if idea rather than a serious hypothesis founded on multiple pieces of evidence. Uh, up until now, many scientists thought birds evolved from a relative of dinosaurs rather than being directly descended from them. This hesitancy may have stemmed from a simple resistance to change. Now, I want to be honest and straight up say that this is just a personal opinion and not based on any written accounts, but I imagine people had a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that birds were dinosaurs. I mean, think about a bird, any bird. What's the first thing that pops into your head? An eagle, a crow, a sparrow, a blue jay? Now try to equate that to a stegosaurus. It just doesn't fit. It's easier to think of dinosaurs as massive lizards or alligators rather than large flightless birds. Now granted, a lot of this reluctance comes from a very patchy fossil record. In trying to find full skeletons of animals and properly collect and excavate them is an arduous process, especially without the mechanized equipment. However, it's not like the evidence wasn't always there. As the 1900s rolled around, new evidence began to suggest this dinosaur origin for birds. One argument against this hypothesis was that birds had wishbones and dinosaurs didn't. However, this is not the case, as there were dinosaurs found at the time, like Tyrannosaurs, that did have wishbones although they were just misidentified as something else. The dinosaur origin for birds 
began to change in the 1960s, which started what a lot of paleontologists like to refer to as the dinosaur renaissance, and continues to this day. During this decade, a major revelation began to rethink our perception of dinosaurs from slow-witted, lumbering beasts to intelligent and graceful animals. In 1964, paleontologist John Ostrom discovered a fascinating dinosaur from Montana that revitalized the dinosaur origin of birds. It was a small predator with long, thin bones, a powerful, grasping hand, and a large, sickle-shaped toe claw. Ostrom realized that this predator was fast and active and likely held its prey and slashed at it with its powerful toe claw. He named it Deinonychus, meaning terrible claw. Noting the similarity of the wrist bone and other key features, Ostrom proposed that birds were descended from dinosaurs and were even warm-blooded. This brought up a furious discussion and debate, especially the warm-blooded part. But nonetheless, his findings changed the community's perception of dinosaurs. The result of his and other scientists' hard work were featured prominently in Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park's dinosaurs were small and bird-like, as opposed to Disney's Fantasia's brutish and chunky creatures. And although the dinosaur, Velociraptor, is featured prominently in both the book and the movie, the real Velociraptor was much smaller, about the size of a turkey, and the movie version is more akin to Ostrom's Deinonychus. As such, the J-Hope Iota came at a time when public opinion was already swaying on their dinosaur opinions. The fossils convinced many skeptics about the origin of birds. It's very amazing to say the least. It really reflects the beauty of scientific progression. What started off as an almost unbelievable hypothesis, supported by just a few scientists, snowballed into a widely accepted idea in 2020. And actually, a new term has arisen since the acceptance that you may have heard of before. Uh, and this term is called non-avian dinosaurs. As birds are now considered dinosaurs, paleontologists use this term to refer to all dinosaurs that are not true birds. As, quote, non-avian dinosaurs is a bit of a mouthful, rest assured that I'll just say dinosaurs because otherwise it will greatly extend the length of these episodes and I'd rather just keep it a little bit short and sweet like that. What I just told you is a, is a summary of the evolution of this debate, of this idea. And honestly, it's very fascinating, and I did skim over many parts of it. But if you would like to learn more, there's this great book that I read uh, called Flying Dinosaurs by John Pickrell. And he did a fantastic job talking about the evolution of birds from dinosaurs, the history of these discoveries, and more. It's really fantastic. Definitely check it out. But for now, let us pivot back to these feathered dinosaurs' ancient world and look at their forested home. When we think about dinosaurs and their lost worlds, it's easy to imagine a swampy world that is hot and humid and filled with lush tropical rainforest and active volcanoes. And although there is some truth to this, the ancient dinosaur world was in fact rich with habitat diversity, just as it is today. We will see many examples of Dinosaurian Lagerstätten that will showcase this, and the J-Hole group is no exception. 
Based on oxygen isotopes in the plant fossil record, the J-hole world was very similar to a modern-day cool, temperate forest like in New England, but with wet and dry seasons. The average annual temperature would have been about 50 degrees Fahrenheit or about 10 degrees Celsius, so cool enough to have likely seen freezing temperatures and even snow in the wintertime. The latitude was also very similar to modern Laoling, which is about 40 degrees north, and this actually also fits closely with its climate. Volcanoes were active during this time, as seen in the layers of ash, and the recent mountain uplift created many lakes where fish and other creatures lived in. With all the diversity and the abundance of freshwater fossils found in the J-Hole group, one notable absence were crocodiles, which typically cannot stand low temperatures and adds further proof to our cool environment. Actually, the cold temperatures may have also indirectly affected J-Hole's largest known dinosaur, Eutyranus, which was a early smaller relative of Tyrannosaurus. Averaging at about 30 feet long or about 10 meters across, this is the largest known dinosaur with feathers. What's interesting about this is that other Tyrannosaurus have yet to be found with feathers, and this actually may have tied into their climate. Modern large mammals that live in hot places like the elephant or rhinoceros are mostly hairless compared to smaller mammals. This is because the larger you are, the better you can retain your heat and the less likely you need hair. But then you have animals like bison who are incredibly shaggy, but live in much colder areas. So it's possible that Eutyranus followed a similar evolutionary pattern. Perhaps their long feathers may have kept them warm in the cold winters. Keep in mind though, take this with a grain of salt, as this hypothesis has a way to go before it has some good ground to stand on. Still pretty cool to think about. Now what's interesting about our J-Hole world is that although it had the makings of a cool forested world, it did not look anything like our modern New England forest. Think of a standard temperate forest. What comes to your head? Maple trees, oak, pine, maybe some berry bushes? Well, most of those plants you're thinking of are not here. This is a forest that is almost completely absent of those plants, and instead filled with conifers and other woody plants. But broadleaf trees like maple, oak, hickory, or chestnut? They're not here. That's because these trees and all flowering plants are under a collective group of plants called the angiosperms, which have flowers and produce seeds in a fruiting body. The angiosperms are among the most successful and important group of terrestrial organisms in Earth history, next to their insect partners. Roughly speaking, flowering plants make up about 95% of all land plants. That's a lot. And they're almost everywhere. They include grass, corn, sunflowers, cacti, roses, sycamores, rice, wheat, and so forth. They dominate our modern habitats and are the foundations of our culture. But in the early Cretaceous, we are seeing the humble roots. Eh? Uh, okay, anyway. We are seeing the humble roots of the angiosperms. These small plants were restricted to just lakes and rivers, with some needing to be totally submerged in water to live a far cry from the towering trees that we see today. Regardless, the Jehobiota is special because it preserves some of the oldest known flowering plants in the world. And as usual for paleontology, if a fossil holds the oldest of its kind trophy, then you're in for some nasty debates. At Jehol, the oldest known flower fossil found, Archaea fructus, was very, very controversial due to its incomplete nature 
and lack of clear angiosperm traits. And it also didn't help that at the time, the rock formation was thought to be from an earlier time period, which brought on an extra level of heat. Anyway, despite its identification in 1998, there is still a sharp divide on whether or not it's a true angiosperm. And as far as I can tell, the jury is still out on that one. However, other more complete fossils that are slightly younger, like Sinocarpus, were found with fruits growing off their stem. And these fossils we can confidently identify as some of the earliest known flowering plants. What really sells the existence of the J-hole flowering plants, in my opinion, are the insects. The evolution of angiosperms coincided with the rise of pollinating insects like bees and butterflies. It's a great trade-off, after all. Instead of just releasing your pollen into the world and just hope it lands on another flower, just give an insect some sweet nectar and pollen and, and have it deliver your pollen to other flowers. Once the insect visits that flower, the carried pollen will fertilize the flower and create seeds. It's a very efficient process. So at J-Hole, insects are tentatively stepping forward to be the world's first pollen taxi drivers. Given the rarity of flowers, it's no surprise these insects are rather uncommon. Flies and beetles have been found with proboscis, which is a straw-like mouthpart, that can suck up nectar. Modern butterflies and moths have this as well, and that's how they get their food. As of yet, no butterflies or bees have been found at J-Hole, and frankly, they may not have even existed yet. J-Hole is way, way older than any of the oldest known butterfly or bee fossils, but never say die. Nonetheless, these unlikely insects and simple flowers were taking their first steps forward to global dominance. Although we're confident that angiosperms existed during the early Cretaceous, there's still a fierce debate raging in the paleobotany community of the true origin of these plants. For a very long time, it was generally accepted that flowers evolved during the Cretaceous period. However, evidence now suggests that angiosperms may have evolved in the previous period, the Jurassic, and maybe even earlier. These pre-Cretaceous scientists point to the J-hole plants, which already had some advanced features, and said that these traits must have took a long time and must have evolved earlier, at least in the Jurassic period. Even more juicy, Jurassic Age angiosperm fossils have been identified and published, but these fossils are regularly ignored or disputed due to faulty identification or incomplete status. Some of the literature I've read has gotten intense. And before I knew it, I was going down this rabbit hole of fossil controversy. And it was just, I, the, I was just like, oh, I got to get out of this before I get sucked in too deep. Regardless, the biggest thing that I took away from all this chaos is that the origin of angiosperms is constantly updating and being challenged and reevaluated. And it's a very enthusiastic field. Who knows what new weird fossil will come up to stir even more trouble. Thankfully, I don't have to worry, really worry about that too much. But in future episodes, we will not look at the origin of angiosperms, but towards their success and understand why they became the dominant organisms on land. But for now, I want to turn to one more key player in our ecosystem, which was the cause for all these beautiful fossils. At the beginning of the age of dinosaurs, the continents were together, 
forming the supercontinent of Pangaea. Slowly but surely, the continents split away from each other and continue to move to this day, with North America moving westward and Asia moving eastward. As Asia moved eastward, the Pacific Plate subducted underneath the continent, and its subduction caused a rise of volcanic activity on its eastern borders. At the time, northeastern China experienced a series of extensions that caused mountains to rise and basins to drop, creating lakes that pooled in these depressions. These lakes create Jehol's various rock formations, which were widespread and can sometimes be up to 3,000 meters thick. Within these formations, we see a repeated back and forth between the lake's gray mudstones and the volcanic orange layers of rock called tuff, spelled T-U-F-F. Tuff is a type of cemented rock formed from a volcanic eruption and consists of ash and rock fragments. Although fossils are found throughout the formations, the most fossiliferous layers are found just underneath the tuff, sometimes in mass mortality layers. Before we go any further, it is this volcanic tuff that tells us how old these layers of rocks are. This is done through a process called radiometric dating. In a future episode, we will cover radiometric dating and how geologists can reconstruct the world's time periods, but for now, they deserve a passing mention. When they analyze these layers of rocks and compare the fossils to other sites from around the world, we know that the J-Hole group was formed during the early Cretaceous. And as of 2020, the most recent publication placed the J-Hole biota from 135 to 120 million years ago, which closely matches the overall consensus. I'll provide a link to the paper on my website if you would like to read it for yourself. So anyway, it is these beds of volcanic tuff that are of interest to paleontologists. What happened millions of years ago to create one of the best conservat Lagerstätten in the world, where delicate feathers, half-digested stomach contents, and embryos are preserved in amazing quality? Since the first feathered bird was found, many ideas were proposed, discarded, shifted, and transformed into new ideas to understand the remarkable preservation that transpired. I honestly think that our understandings of these preservations will continue to change well after I publish this podcast. One thing that we can all agree, it was definitely caused by a volcanic eruption. No doubt there. For one thing, the animals and plants are found underneath the tuff. Tuff is actually pretty fantastic at preserving animals. Once the animals sink to the bottom of the lake, which these animals are found in, the ash sinks down with it and buries it quickly. The fine sediment creates a dense mud that prevents oxygen from seeping in and decaying the body. And the toxic ash would have killed microbial life and prevented any burrowing organisms from disrupting the body. So you have a fantastic method of preservation here to ensure a high level of quality and detail for your animals. It was very cool. But where the hypothesis differ is the mode of transport for the animals after death. The original hypothesis thought that it was poisonous gas. Any animals flying over the lake or walking by the lakeshore would have choked to death, fallen into the water, and then be buried by ash. However, a comprehensive study on the different rock layers suggests a more active transport. By looking at the rock deposits, the orientation of the animals, and analyzing charred plant and animal remains, Dr. Jiang and other scientists proposed that animals were killed by a pyroclastic flow which is a violent and fast-moving cloud of ash and rock. 
The pyroclastic flow killed the animals, transported them to a lake, where they eventually sank and were buried by the ash and mud. Most of the rock layers at J-Hole are preserved within two-dimensional fossils with amazing soft tissues. These include the birds and dinosaurs that I mentioned uh, before. However, the oldest member in these rock layers, which is found in the Yixian Formation, has the rarest type of fossilization. Although it doesn't preserve soft tissues, it instead captures fossils in their full three-dimensional glory. Some of the animals were still preserved in a sleeping position and show no sign of transport or post-burial death. Yet even more curious, there are no signs of insects or flying animals. What gives? Originally thought to be a major ash deposit, this layer of rock likely formed from a lahar. Lahars are violent, fast-moving mudslides that can move up to tens of meters per second. Once they stop moving, though, they instantly harden like concrete. Although there is still debate about this, it is thought that when the lahar reached the forest floor, it filled in and collapsed any burrows along its path. The lahar quickly entombed any underground creatures after they were killed by carbon dioxide gas. One of the most amazing finds from this lair was a whole family of small dinosaurs called Cetacosaurus. The lair had one adult, a caretaker, and 34 juveniles all in one place. That's, that's crazy. It's a really amazing fossil to look at. Another di- new dinosaur was actually discovered this year when I was recording this episode. And it's called Changmiania. And it was a small ornithopod dinosaur, which is a dinosaur that eats plants, and was also found in a restful position. One of the most famous examples was a small carnivorous dinosaur featured prominently in the intro of this episode. It was found with its head tucked underneath its arm like a sleeping bird. And given its peaceful position, the death was very likely quick and did not suffer. And in accordance to this unusual find, the paleontologist named this dinosaur Meilong, meaning the soundly sleeping dragon. What I like about these fossils is that, I mean, yes, they don't have the soft tissues preserved in them like their two-dimensional comrades, but they have a level of life to them that you rarely find in other fossils. Seeing them in that sleeping position really hones in that these were creatures that were alive, that they, they ate, they mated, they slept. And seeing them in such a peaceful position like that really hones in that, that these were once animals, very similar to the behavior to the ones you see in your backyard or on hiking trails or in the parks. And it's just very incredible to me. And it's these small moments like these that just really shine a spotlight on a world that is unfortunately otherwise dead to us. Very incredible. And it's because of these amazing fossils that many scientists refer to the J-Hole biota as the Mesozoic Pompeii. Alright, so that does it for part one of the J-Hole biota. Uh, We still have a lot to cover, but I wanted to make sure that these episodes were in manageable chunks and not over an hour long, and that would just be too much to, to go over at once. 
Now that we have the basis for our ancient forest, next time we will be looking at the variety of animals found here. It's going to be great. The animals found here are just so cool. It you it's you just you'll definitely love it. It's going to be fantastic. If you like this episode, make sure to hit subscribe and see the part two of the J Hole Biota. And of course, I have my Twitter account Fossil Bonanza and my website fossilbonanza.com where you can see other articles I posted about fossil logger stotten and so forth. And hello again, this is Andy uh, recording this bit a uh, day before this podcast goes live. So I want to say thank you again for listening. The transcript of this episode will be available on Fossil Bonanza along with a list of references, so make sure to check that out. And I have another review that I'm going to read real quick, which is uh, posted by DatGirlReary33. I think I'm saying that right. Okay, so it goes, Road Trip Approved. Binge the first few episodes to get safely across the country, and it was extremely entertaining and educational. Keep it up. Thank you very much for that kind review. I definitely appreciate it. And one last thing before I let you all go. I have a special announcement to make. I've been giving it some thought, and I'm going to do a season two of this podcast. Uh, Goodness knows when that will come out. But uh, I want to make a theme around it because the, the theme of season one is the diversity of Lagerstaaten, and uh, that's kind of nice. But I want there to be like a central idea or a core story to it. And there are three ideas I've been kind of looking into. Uh, the first one are Lagerstaaten from the Eocene period, which is uh, one of the warmest and wettest time periods in Earth's history and is important because it's the early age of mammals. A lot of good stuff there. The next one is the history of South America. Uh, a lot of South American sites go overlooked, and there's some pretty interesting ones there. And I thought it'd be really cool to kind of go through the history of South America. And finally, the last one I was looking at was early ecosystems on land. Uh, what were the challenges that life had to face in order to overcome all the myriad of issues and problems that land just threw at them? I think it's really cool, and it's a time period that I haven't done yet on this show. And so those are the three ideas I'm looking at. If you have any strong preferences, you should let me know on my Twitter or on a review, and I'll definitely take that into consideration. All right, until next time, I love you all, and have a great day.